0: This week on BSD Now, we have assembly language on OpenBSD, using Beehive for FreeBSD development work, also gaming on FreeBSD and FreeBSD for Thanksgiving, and no space left on Dragonfly BSD's Hammer 2 file system and other interesting news items in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 274, Language Assembly, recorded on the 28th of November 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Rolschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And welcome back to a great episode of BSD Now. I hope we have something interesting for you because we have a broad range of topics today. And starting off with headlines is Assembly Language on OpenBSD AMD64 and ARM64. Uh, This is over at cryogenics.net, and uh, this is a short introduction to assembly language programming on OpenBSD, so in case you haven't uh, looked at that uh, for a while, this is a good introduction. Um, Because of security features in the kernel, um, the author here have had to rethink a series of tutorials covering ARCH64 assembly language on OpenBSD, and therefore this will serve as a placeholder uh, reminder-y thingy. Okay, so OpenBSD, like many Unix and Unix-like operating systems, now uses the executable and linkable format, aka ELF, for its binary uh, or library binaries and executables. Although the structure of this format is beyond the scope of this short introduction, it is necessary for them to explain part of the uh, of this um, of these uh, from the headers. And within the program header, there are sections known as pt underscore note that OpenBSD and other systems use to distinguish their ELF binaries or executables. OpenBSD looks for this
1: section to check if it should attempt to execute the program or not. So our yeah, first... Yeah, so program, like um, if you've ever tried to use the Linux emulation stuff on FreeBSD, you might have encountered the program brand ELF, which lets you change... This information at in the beginning of an executable, uh, and particularly, you know, mark this as this should run as Linux. And then when you try to run the binary, the FreeBSD kernel sees that and says, "Oh, this isn't a FreeBSD binary; it's a Linux binary. Let me run it this way."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and the, I think there's in FreeBSD there's also support for running some really old, like original BSD binaries, and so on. Uh, and again, using that type of thing.
0: So um, they start off with the first program that is written in C. Interesting enough. And it's often a good idea to prototype your assembly programs in a high-level language, such as C, uh, which can then double up as both a set of nodes and a working program that you can debug and compile into assembly language to compare with your own ASM code. So there's the, uh, the C program. It's very simple. You just do the syscall and then return. And then you run Clang with dash O to create the the name of the executable. And of course, then you provide the name of your C program or the location. And the same with GNU C, just different uh, compiler. And then you run the program. Well, of course, it should do nothing. Just silently exit and return to the shell prompt. Exciting. Yay. Next, we will rewrite this program in assembly language. And so that's what they do here. And here's some general purpose registers that you might need in this case. So the accumulator, the base, the counter, uh, the data segment uh, can extend into the accumulator. Uh, the source index for string ops, as well as the stack pointer, which is an important thing, because that points where you are currently at in your uh, program, in your stack. And the base pointer, as well as the general purpose registers where you can put data into and grab it out of there. These are your basic variables and um, so the system calls such as the one we're using here in this uh, c program here sys underscore exit um, they are defined in sys syscall dot h the header and assemblers unlike c compilers can't use these c slash c plus plus include files so we need to extract defines and macros from them to implement in assembly so that said some fancy assemblers such as fasm and nasm uh, may provide macros for common types and functions, but we're good purists so won't mention those. And so it goes on a little bit into the uh, section node.openbsd slash indent or ident, and there's your assembly program. So you link that, of course, because just compiling uh, doesn't get you much, and you need to link that with AS, and then, or then use LD, the actual linker, and provide the parameter dash dash dynamic dash linker and link that to ld.so or you can statically link it Uh, sure and that way you have your little program sys exit and you can also see the return code with your uh, on the shell dollar question mark gives you the return code from the previous uh, program and that tells you whether the program ran successfully or not if it's returning zero then it's uh, Returning fine or just ran fine, and if there's a different code other than zero, then there's usually something, something wrong or some some error happened. Um, so, and the article continues with some inline assembly. Uh, I guess it's best um, people look at that themselves if they're interested. So it's a good introduction into basic assembly programming and getting started, and um, yeah, all on that on OpenBSD. But I guess. The instructions are um, not too specific, except for the OpenBSD sections.
1: Yeah, but in general, it shows loading the value 123 into the RDI register and the RAX register and then calling syscall. It shows two different ways to do it. But you see, when you compile it, you get the same result.
0: Yeah, that's it.
1: And then they repeat the same thing for ARM where the assembly language looks a bit different.
0: Hmm. Yep. So the article has all the code in it. If you just want to try it out for yourself, then uh, it's all prepared nicely, and you should be on your way into assembly programming. All right. Uh, Next up, we have Using Beehive for FreeBSD Development.
1: Yeah. Uh, So this is by John Baldwin, uh, who has since actually done quite a bit of work on Beehive, uh, in addition to being one of the uh, uh, biggest contributors to FreeBSD. Oh, yeah. Uh, it starts out with a note saying that this, uh, the original version of this article was published in the July-August 2014 edition of the FreeBSD Journal. Uh, of course, some details have changed since that time. It's been a couple of years. Uh, and For example, Beehive now supports running on AMD processors uh, and so on. Um, however, I still use the network setup that he described in that article today, because it works great. Uh, uh, however, several people have asked for examples of NADD VMs and so on on a laptop, so he's added uh, that as well. So, uh, one of the exciting new features of FreeBSD is Beehive, the hypervisor. Uh, basically, allows you to run virtual machines uh, in a wide variety of applications on FreeBSD. So this article will focus on using Beehive as a tool for aiding development of FreeBSD itself. By running uh, the experimental FreeBSD that you're working on in a hypervisor, if you manage to panic the kernel, uh, it doesn't take out the machine you're writing the code on, just you know the subprocess where you were running uh, that code. Uh, So it has a little background on what the hypervisor is. Uh, It's not that new anymore, so maybe we'll skip over a little bit of that. Uh, Importantly, though, he describes the network setup he uses. Uh, So the network uh, connections between the guests and the host can be configured in several different ways. Uh, Two different setups are described below, uh, but there are many possible configurations. So the only guest network driver currently supported by Beehive is the Vertio network adapter. I think actually in... Thirteen and or twelve and thirteen. There's uh, an emulated Intel available now as well, but oh, cool. Uh, you'd only want to use that in the case of an OS that doesn't have Vertio support. Anyway, mm. uh, each network interface uh, exposed to the guest is associated with a tap interface on the host. Uh, the tap driver allows a user program to inject packets into the network stack and accept packets from uh, a process. So by design, each tap interface uh, will only pass traffic if it is open by a user process and it is administratively enabled or up. Uh, As a result, each tap interface must be explicitly enabled each time a guest is booted. Uh, This can be a bit inconvenient, especially if you're constantly rebooting the guest because it's crashing or you're just, all right, now I want to try a new kernel and then another new kernel and so on. So the tap driver has a setting called up on open uh, which you can set via a sysctl, which will cause the equivalent of doing ifconfig tap3 up every time Beehive opens the tap interface. So with that, you'll have basic networking between the guest and the host. Uh, so you basically give the host an IP on the tap interface and have the guest have an IP inside the VM, and they'll be able to talk to each other. Uh you might actually want the VM to talk to your entire network, not just your laptop or the machine you're running the beehive on. So you can use bridged networking. Uh, So one simple network setup bridges the guest network of the VM directly under the network which the host is connected. Um, So a single if bridge interface is created, the tap interface uh, of the guest is added to the bridge along with uh, one of the physical interfaces of the host. So in this example, they create a bridge, add the RE0 uh, network adapter from their laptop or uh, desktop, and then add the tap and set the bridge up, and now uh, the guest will be able to reach any host on your physical network. And then here, this example shows how to configure that up with um, RC.conf, so it happens automatically at boot. Uh, another popular choice, especially uh, since it's not really possible to bridge to Wi Fi, uh, is to use NAT. Um, and this will basically have some internal network addressing uh, between the host and the guest, and have the host then translate that out into something that uh, will go out to the regular network. Uh, so this setup also uses a bridge, but only the tap interfaces used by the guests added the bridge. The main point of this is to let the uh, guests talk to each other Mm. uh, directly without having to go through the NAT and so on. So the bridge members are all assigned addresses in some private subnet. Uh, The bridge interface is assigned an address from that private network uh, for the host side. Um, And the host will basically act as a router and permit the guests to reach out uh, to the internet or whatever. Um, And you can obviously configure the NAT to allow the internet to reach into the guests if you need as well. So in this example, um, they will set up the bridge kind of the same as before, um, although they set up auto bridge so that every tap that's created will automatically be added to the bridge, um, configure the bridge with an IP address, enable uh, gateway, which makes your machine do a router, enable NAT and tell it to NAT all the stuff out over your wireless uh, and enable the IPFW firewall. Uh, you can also choose to use something like a DNS mask to to set up a DHCP server to have the guests get DHCP and so on. Yeah, That's there are various like options. Example of that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Also shows how to make it use your host resolver and so on. Then they have an example of using VM Run, uh, which is a An example script for starting Beehive that's uh, available on FreeBSD and then they talk a bit about configuring guests. Um, FreeBSD guests do not require extensive configuration settings to be able to run. The most settings can be set uh, during the system installer however there are a few uh, conventions and additional settings that can be useful. If you're booting old FreeBSD prior to 9.3 or 10.1 the uh, console isn't necessarily set up the way you would like for Beehive. Uh, generally, you're not gonna be running FreeBSD that old anymore, but back when this article came out, that was actually relatively modern. Uh, if the guest requires network access, you wanna make sure that it does DHCP uh, or something on whichever network, uh, You know, if you're running DNS mask and so on. Uh, so your basic config can be, give the machine a host name, Tell it to use DHCP on the Verdio network adapter, enable SSH, and disable SendMail. Uh, now, on to actually doing the fun stuff. Uh, Development. Using Beehive guest as a target. So one way Beehive can be used while developing FreeBSD is to allow a host to debug a guest as if the guest was some remote machine specifically a test kernel can be built on the host booted inside the guest and then debugged from the host using kgdb once a guest is created and configured and a test kernel has been built on the host the next step is to boot the guest with that test kernel the traditional method is to install the kernel into the guest file system either by uh, exporting the build directory to a guest via nfs or copying the kernel over the network or mounting the guest file system on the host directly like with mdconfig if you're guest is run with a, from an image file or something. Uh, however, an alternative method is available via beehive load, uh, which is uh, similar to booting the test machine over the network. So if you're using beehive load, which is basically a version of the FreeBSD bootloader rewritten for user space, uh, and then with the beehive bits added on, uh, the beehive load program allows a directory on the host file system to be exported to the loader environment. This can be used to load a kernel and modules from a host file system rather than the guest, disk image. Uh, so the files don't actually end up in the guest, but the loader, which, um, so beehive load is basically copying the data for the kernel and the modules that you specify from the disc of the host directly into the memory, uh, of the guest and then running them, uh, similar to how the loader boots FreeBSD normally. So um, the directory on the host file system is passed to Beehive load with the lowercase h flag. Uh, the Beehive load program exports a host zero colon device uh, into the loader environment. And so you just basically configure your machine to boot from host zero colon and then slash boot slash kernel kernel or whatever. So, the VMRun script in FreeBSD 10.1 and later allows the directory to set with the capital H environment or uh, capital H argument. The script will convert a relative path to an absolute path before passing it to the Beehive load for you. So, booting a test kernel from the host uh, inside of the guest involves basically you make install with a dester. Um, to some directory somewhere on your machine, and then you give that directory to Beehive load, and then you reboot the VM and tell it the path I want you to load is host zero colon slash boot slash kernel slash kernel, uh, and now the guest will start with that new kernel. It allows you to iterate very quickly because you don't have to try to get the files into the VM every time. You can literally just uh, restart Beehive. Yeah, and it's quicker and
0: uh, much more convenient to have a quicker cycle between uh, development and seeing what your development looks like.
1: Exactly, so you just go into your compile directory, you install, uh, you know, or just from the root, you can do make install kernel dester equals, you know, behive VM0 host or whatever on your, um, in your home directory. Um, They have a special parameter, kmod own. In this case, it'll even make the um, files be owned by the John user instead of root. Uh, So Mm -hmm. actually, this part can all be done as a regular user even. Uh, And then you can just run the VM run script and point it to that directory. Uh, And then in the loader, you just tell it to load that kernel, uh, which you can also... You can configure this via loader.conf inside so you don't have to do it every time. Uh, and then it's pretty easy. Also, you can use the next boot command inside the guest to tell it, you know, next time boot from this kernel. You can give it different names or different directories or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, very and nice. As you mentioned, you can configure the debug port, uh, in this case, with the dash G flag. Uh, and then you can connect your KGDB on the host to it, uh, and actually be able to you know, poke around in the kernel while it's running and see what's up. And it also talks about using uh, the virtual serial port uh, with the debugger. Yep. So, uh, the Beehive hypervisor is a nice addition to a FreeBSD developer's toolbox. It just can be used both to develop new features and to test merges uh, to stable kernels and so on. Uh, the hypervisor has a wide variety of uses beyond just developing FreeBSD, obviously, but uh, it definitely has sped up a many developers' ability to do things and test things on FreeBSD because you don't have to, you know, build an image or somehow get the new kernel into your existing, you know, VMware or Parallels or whatever VM. You can just say, you know, instead of loading the kernel from the disk image, take it from this directory on my host machine. Mm. Yeah, so thank you, John, for writing that article, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it's
0: pretty straightforward. People can just try it out and, um, yeah, start developing this way. So, time for the news roundup this week, and yes, we've done it again. We're covering an article (laughs) written by uh, Mariusz Saborski here on his blog and this time it's about games on FreeBSD. Ooh, I see you getting excited. So um, he writes, what do all programmers like to do after work? Okay, what do most programmers like to do after work? The answer is simple. Play a good game. Recently at the Polish BSD user group meetup, Moolander was telling us how you can play games on OpenBSD. Today's, let's discuss how um, it looks in the FreeBSD world using the server-only operating system. So, the XNA-based games um, are uh, one of the ways of playing natively is to play indie games which use XNA. So, XNA is a framework from Microsoft which uses .NET for creating games. Fortunately, in the BSD world, we have Mono, an open source implementation of Microsoft's .NET framework, which you can use to run games. There is also FNA framework, which is a re-implementation of the XNA, which allows you to run the games under Linux. So Thomas Forwine from OpenBSD prepared a script, uh, F-N-A-I-F, wait, F-N-A-I-F-Y. So here we are, F-N-A-I-F-Y. That uh, translates all the dependencies used by an FN8 game to OpenBSD dependencies. So he decided to port that script to FreeBSD, and the script is using slash bin sh, uh, which in the case of OpenBSD is a corn shell. And he writes, I didn't test it with many games, but I don't see any reason why it shouldn't work with all the games tested by the OpenBSD guys. So here comes the list. For example, with Cryptarch, Rogue Legacy, Apotheon, Escape Goat, Bastion, CrossCode, Adam Zombie Smasher, and some open source games. Okay, that's already something for a rainy afternoon. Um, and... Open-source games here in FreeBSD and OpenBSD, we also find popular games which were open-sourced. For example, I spend a lot of time playing in Quake 3 Arena on my FreeBSD machine. Ah, oh, the memories. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you can very simply install it using package. Package install ioquake3 and then you have it. The move. Uh, then you move the files for the skins and maps to the .ioquake directory from your copy of Quake. And in the past, uh, I also played Urban Terror, which is a fully open-source shooter based on the Quake 3 Arena engine. Oh, dear. Okay, let's never challenge uh, him to a <laughs> deathmatch. Okay, um, it's also very easy. Yeah, it? Well, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty good at those, experience. too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. You bring your both laptops to the next yes, conference. I, uh... Fight it out.
1: I just, we just had the, was it the 100th? No. I don't know. We just had like the 300th lamb party at our college uh, a while back. Oh. Two months ago, three months ago. Uh, yeah. You were there? Uh, okay. Yes. Because because they announced that there would be cake for the, the, the anniversary, I showed up. Uh, <laughs> also because I used to help host them when I worked at the college. Uh, and I also attended them a lot when I was a student. Um and it turns out that they've never missed a scheduled LAN party, but there was Ooh. one time where Brian, the guy that hosts them, wasn't there because uh, he was too sick. But I hosted it without him and kept it going. And thanks to that, they've never missed one. Oh! Like if I hadn't been around,
0: yeah, yeah, then the the cycle would be broken. Yeah.
1: Um, although in the tournament uh, we had to, uh big match of Unreal Tournament 2004 uh, for prizes. Uh, Sadly, I was defeated by my cousin, who's a student there. (laughs) Oh, uh, Oh, sorry. uh, (laughs) My first cousin once removed, however it works. My cousin's kid. It's in the family, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yes, uh, the prize went to the family, so it was okay.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Okay, yeah, so uh, back to the article. Um, The package install, I.O. Urban Terror, will get you that game. And in the port tree in the games directory, you can find over a thousand directories, many of them with fully implemented games. I didn't test Ooh, any games. I haven't
1: even thought of Jazz Jackrabbit since. Oh, there was always a also a Christmas edition with with like snow and all that, wasn't it? Uh, I I just never, it was uh, a game, a, a shareware game my mom bought for like a dollar out of a bargain bin at the <laughs> store and brought home one time. Right, and it was basically. Uh, uh, I think Mega Games kind of like ripoff of Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, with DC. the rabbit as a uh, character.
1: <laughs> that was good. Um, of course, the most important game that he's missing here is Open TTD, Transport Tycoon Deluxe. Oh, oh dear, the the best game, <laughs> and I think the most mature open source reimplementation of a game. Oh yeah,
0: with because all the train it, signals. Originally,
1: it started as literally like a binary patch to the original game. And eventually (laughs) they extended it so much, it was easier to rewrite the entire game from scratch. Mm. Yeah. You still import the original skin because if it doesn't look the same as it did originally, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) It doesn't work, yeah. (laughs) Although I I shudder to think what those graphics look like on my 4K monitor nowadays. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Well, but
0: the nostalgia is there. Okay. Um, So, yeah. Um, he didn't test many games in this category, but you can find some interesting titles like Open XCOM, the open-source reimplementation of the original XCOM, where you just go out of the, your UFO and are immediately shot dead. Uh, <laughs> frustrating moments in games, uh, yeah. So then there's Open Jazz, the free, as Alan mentioned, the Jazz Jack Rabbit reimplementation, and uh, Core Sixth. Open Source, the reimplementation of the Theme Hospital, which was also popular in its day. Uh, Quake 2, Open Red Alert, also nice for the strategic um, gaming. Uh, open RCT2, which is the Roller Coaster Tycoon 2 reimplementation. So you can see people who like certain games will make sure that they're still available long after their prime time. And there's Open uh, MW, which is the open source engine re-implementation of the game Morrowind. Excellent. Um, all those titles are simply installed through the packages. In that case, I don't think FreeBSD has any difference from OpenBSD. Um, but there's also wine. Uh, not the drinking wine, but the emulator. <laughs> One of the big advantages no, of FreeBSD. It's not an emulator. The E in wine. Right. Stands Wine's for... not an emulator. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just to distinguish it from the thing you drink. Um, <laughs> so uh, the big of course, advantage. course, I just of thought FreeBSD. of another
1: game that I should see if has been ported. And if not, it should get ported. Which is uh, free call, which is a uh, free reimplementation of colonization. Uh, oh yes, spinners of civilization, but is that in a Java or something? No, the original colonization is yeah. Uh, that was that was that was DOS. Those DOS, but uh, and you could also edit is... some of the files because they were just yeah, text files. I think this is Java, but maybe it is actually.
0: Yeah, I think remember I remember playing know. an earlier version, and it crashed because the stack. Was too full at one point, and but yeah, maybe they um, have a better version now. Okay, that, but it, yes. Yeah, so
1: the, free call is in fact in the ports tree and available to play.
0: I guess we lose lose at least a third of the audience by just mentioning these games, um, but it's definitely new.
1: Somehow it. it wasn't quite as much of a time suck as Civilization, but pretty close.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, Civilization is unbeaten, is the unbeaten
1: champion of yeah, of, yeah of, champion on that throne of time, time dilation you play uh for what seems like an hour and then you realize it's been 8 hours and yeah, just have, one more you, move
0: just one more one,
1: one more, more turn one more turn <laughs> okay uh well so wine
0: allows you to run windows applications under other operating systems including the mac and if you're a freebsd 11 user you can simply fetch wine from packages by package install Careful, i386-wine is the is the name that you need, and then you have it. To run Windows games, you need to have a 32-bit Wine uh, because most of the games on Windows are built on 32 bits from back in the day. Maybe this has changed. Uh, He doesn't play so much these days, Um, and so in his case, uh, because I run FreeBSD current, I needed to build Wine from ports. It wasn't nice, but it was also um, yeah, it wasn't unpleasant in that regard. The whole step-by-step building process of a wine from ports can be found also in the article. And uh, to sum it all up, there's more games and more uh, nostalgia for us. Um, To sum it up, as you can see, there are many titles available for the BSDs thanks to the FNA and FNAIFY. I'm practicing that. Um, (laughs) OpenBSD and FreeBSD can work with indie games, which use the XNA framework. There are many interesting games implemented using this framework. Open source is not only for big server machines, and there are many re-implementations of popular games like the Theme Hospital or Rollercoaster Tycoon 2. Uh, The biggest market is still enabled through Wine, although it creates a lot of problems to run the games. Also, if you are an OpenBSD user, um, only this option is not available to you. Please also note that we didn't discuss any other emulators besides Wine and uh, OpenBSD and FreeBSD. There are many uh, of them for the Game Boys, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the Neo Geo, and other game consoles out there. Oh, dear. Yeah, so many fun hours playing. Okay. Great. So, uh, we just... um, finished that, or at least the U.S. did, at uh, Thanksgiving weekend, but um, we have an article here from Ben Widowski called FreeBSD for
1: Thanksgiving. Yes, uh, so Ben writes, uh, six months in and still going strong. He says, I've been working on FreeBSD for Intel for about six months now. Uh, in the world of programmers, I'm considered an old dog, and these six months have mostly been about learning new tricks. Luckily, I found myself in a remarkably inclusive and receptive community whose patience seems plentiful. As I get ready to take some time off for the holidays, I move into the retrospective time of year. I thought I'd uh, beat the rush and post a bit of an update. So earlier this year, I decided to move from architect of the Linux graphics driver into the more nebulous role of FreeBSD enabling. Uh, I was excited, but also uncertain if I had made the right decision. Earlier this year, I decided some general work in power management was highly important and be work- began working there. I also attended BSD Cam, uh, and he has the the group picture from BSD Cam and points himself up, uh, and led a session on power management. I was honored to be able to lead this kind of effort. Earlier this quarter, I put the first round of my patches up for review, implementing suspend to idle, uh, which is instead of suspend to RAM, it allows the computer to stay slightly more awake, but still save a lot of power. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have some rougher patches to handle the S0IX support, uh, so that when you suspend to idle, uh, you can emulate different modes. Anyway, uh, he also gave a talk at MeetBSD about the work of his team. And earlier this month, I noticed that uh, FreeBSD doesn't have an implementation of Intel Speed Shift, the hardware p-states bits. Uh, And so he started working on that. And he also uh, links to a fabricator patch for that. Uh, And then he said, earlier this week, I was uh, promoted from a lowly mentee to a full source committer at FreeBSD. And earlier today, I decided to relegate my Linux laptop to the role of backup machine. And I'm writing this from my Dell XPS 13 running FreeBSD 13. Oh, great. So it says six months later, and I feel a lot less uncertain about making the right decision. In fact, I think both opportunities would be great. And I'm thankful this Thanksgiving uh, that this is my life and career. I have uh, more plans and more things that I want to get done. And I'm looking forward to being thankful again next year. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's good to have Ben on board and uh, helping out with certain tasks or certain areas in the system. And yeah, we're making good progress.
1: And uh, yeah, thank you from the community to Ben for helping especially on fronts like power management where it's often hard to find people that have the right experience and importantly um, sometimes access to the right docs and you are mm. uniquely suited for that so yeah so yeah that's a good effort although you might not want to have admitted that you have so much experience with the Linux graphics stuff from Intel because we could make you work on that too
0: <laughs> it can come in use yeah
1: yeah <laughs> Okay, um, And actually, uh, the the head of the FreeBSD graphics team says that uh, apparently Ben has been lending a hand, so that's good.
0: Yeah, there's already some collaboration uh, going on. Okay, um, switching gears here a little bit, um, we have a story about Hammer 2 from Dragonfly BSD. Uh, No space left on device. Sound familiar as an error message?
1: (laughs) Yep. Uh, So Gary writes in and says, uh, so he has this issue. Hammer 2 does not actually delete a file when you RM or unlink it. Since recovery of a file is possible, uh, you know that's the point of the design of Hammer 2, there uh, will still be an entry taking up the data. It's similar to how Git works. Um, turns out, I was reading the other day, uh, ZFS does a bit of this uh, for two reasons. One is mostly so that you don't overwrite data uh, in this window where you might roll back. So in particular, if the machine crashes you might go back to an older Uber block that points to that data before it was deleted. So when you actually delete a file or whatever, it, gets, it goes on this deferred list and doesn't actually get counted as free space until you've actually gone um, enough transaction groups that none of the Uber blocks still refer to that block. Uh, it's only probably a couple of minutes versus uh, the way Hammer works but uh, I wonder if that might be more adjustable in the future. Hmm. So uh, anyway, he looks at the DF and he sees that he has only 75% of his space used. And that means there should be over four terabytes or four gigabytes in this example available. Uh, So the file system could still have filled up. If you're using it as your root file system, uh, then attempting to clean up data might actually fail. Uh, if the kernel panics over this, uh, you can see something like this. And it shows an example trying to create an indirect block and there was no space. Uh, and so the kernel panicked in this case. Um, it had written some data and in trying to write the metadata and stuff for it, they had run out of space. Uh, FreeBSD uh, or ZFS does uh, some reservations and so on to make sure that that isn't likely to happen. Mm-hmm. And, but he says, interesting here is, rebooting will probably not succeed. That could be a problem. So, the fix. If you have a recent enough version of the Rescue RAM disk installed, on boot up, you can press R for Rescue and access the Rescue RAM disk. Uh, if it's a remote machine, you better hope you have something like IPMI to be able to do it on the remote machine. Mm-hmm. But then, if you uh, mount your Hammer FS system... If you see an error that hammer is not found, then your rescue disk is not up-to-date enough to have hammer. Anyway, once it's there, you can run the bulk free command to go and clean up some of that uh, freed space that isn't freed yet. Uh, if you do not have enough memory on your machine, you may need to mount some swap uh, to be able to do this. Once you've run the bulk free command twice, The usage reported by df-h will be correct. However, there's a chance that on reboot that a core dump will be placed in Far Crash and will fill up your disk again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it notes, if you run into this problem and get stuck, uh, they point out the Dragonfly BSD IRC chat room, which you should check out. Okay, yep, good to know.
0: So time for Beastie Bits this week, uh, starting off with the BSD Pizza Night in Portland, which is a monthly thing now or has mm. been for a while. It has been for a while. Uh, yeah. So it's quick and easy at the announcement. Howdy voices of BSD now. That was written to us, of course. Uh, writing to let you know that several folks interested in BSD are getting together for pizza here in Portland, Oregon for the last Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. this month on October. Ah, crotch, no, October 29th.
1: November, November.
0: November. It's November. It's November. It is November. Uh, we'll be it at won't 48 points. Yeah, right. By the time you listen to this non live episode, um, it, but it's repeating monthly. so.
1: Yes, yes this has been going on for years. So the last Thursday of every month at 7 p.m., they go to a different pizza place. Apparently, you know, they've not repeated. So I'm I'm curious how they managed to do that. Anyway, uh, if you're from Portland, you should check out the site Caligator, C-A-L-A-G-A-T-A-R, uh, which is a calendar aggregator. Um, and they always have their meetups posted there. There's also the Portland Linux user group, which is dominated by BST people. Um, and you should check that out too. But yes, uh, if you're in Portland and you should... Hang out with the pizza people, and uh, it's you know more informal—just a bunch of people having pizza and talking about BSD. A well, perfect combination.
0: Okay, yeah, then uh, I guess we'll announce the next one in time so that people can.
1: Uh, well, we, have we to announced rush this out one before. last week too, but we <laughs> yeah. just reminding people, hey, turn up. Yeah, we have and we, can- we have spies at the BSD pizza night, and we will know if you showed up or not.
0: Yeah, So you better show
1: up or we're going to be be disappointed.
0: (laughs) Or a good excuse for that is if you run your own pizza night. And if you do that and it works, then send it to us and we'll announce it on the show as well. Um, Like the next one, uh, the 35C3, the Chaos Communication Congress, is uh, between the years. uh, And uh, here's a little announcement here, which is the place for you, Nix. Got it? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Only one person could read that. Properly, um, yeah. So, <laughs> so this is from the twenty seventh of December, twenty eighteen, uh, till the thirtieth of December in Leipzig, Germany, uh, which is a huge, amazing annual congress uh, of the Chaos Computer Club, which is uh, um, hackers, crackers, and um, interesting uh, social um, events in computing at all, and um, exchange of experience in hacking with and on the BSDs. So there's a, um, a sub event here or. Uh, a meeting of like-minded people in this case. And uh, there's links to the ticket pre-sales that have been started already, I think. So um, be quick about it if you want to attend. And um, yeah, so there's a bunch of information here, but it's definitely a very interesting uh, conference. It will be streamed, uh, live streamed. They're pretty good at it. And um, yeah, if you get boring after Christmas, then yeah, that's a good way of getting your... Hacking wipes um, going. All right, um, what's next? Oh yes, we have product Project Trident pre-release images now available. Ooh, that's towards the finish line. So this is over at project-trident.org, and you can see first of all what kind of system can this run on, and do I need to buy a new computer for that? And it turns out, eh, well, it runs fairly uh, well on modern PCs. I mean, you need gigabytes of memory that should be not too difficult Mm -hmm. and uh they have a uh, oh an 18.11 pre-release warnings slash errata section um so because there are apparently some boot up issues uh, oh with the bootloader yeah 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 um and so if you experience any issues with booting the iso on the installed system um there's a bug ticket that you can file so that the People can confirm that it's that bug or or a different one. And there are some possible solutions for boot-up issues. Um, first, you should update your system BIOS following the instructions from your system motherboard manufacturer. And second, if your system has weird corrupted terminal graphics during the boot-up, follow a separate guide that's linked here. Or third, try switching your BIOS to legacy mode instead of the UEFI mode. This may... Uh, or may have other consequences, though. UEFI is recommended for most modern graphics driver support, so it could work, but uh, it's not um, guaranteed. So at least try it out and see if it works. Uh, They also list a couple of other known issues down there with VirtualBox Guest, um, but they also have a bypass for that. And, of course, they list the migration update paths down there, so all the instructions are on the website. And definitely check it out if you still want to report some errors. That's the best way of um, not finding them in the final release. And that's a good way of getting your... um, Yeah. See how the system will will look like and have a first-hand experience. Okay. While we were on the subject of games, uh, we have Play Stardew Valley on OpenBSD. Oh, this is really (laughs) the gaming episode today. Yeah. There's a... Handy little tutorial, um, just six steps, and you're on your way to Stardew Valley. Uh, so, first, you install the packages, unzip and FNAIF that uh, was Marius mentioning. Uh, FNAIFI. FNAIFI.
1: FNAIFI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, you're, it's not it, you're converting it to FNA. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. And then on GOG, uh, good old games, uh, download the Linux installer, unzip the installer using unzip that you just um, installed mm-hmm. and uh, then cd into data no arch uh, slash game uh, fna and ifi 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 uh, mm-hmm. then start the valley and you start the executable start Valley. valley happy gaming great mm-hmm. i'm off um no <laughs> i'll finish at least this episode um gui wrapper for open bsd mixer cuddle is
1: next Yes. Cool. So, so CTL is a GUI wrapper uh, for OpenVSD's MixerCTL command line tool and allows you to control your audio inputs and outputs. Uh, it's a Python 3 based, so you can just install Python 3 and run the setup tool, and there it goes. Mm, great. Yeah, looks nice. Uh, known issue is that uh, if you configure SND-IOD, or configuring SND-IOD requires the user run uh, gmixerctl so that it can run rcctl as root. uh, And the SND-IOD tab doesn't auto-update once the application has started. So if you change something over there, you might have to restart the GUI to see the difference.
0: Oh, yeah. And the last item is a little bit shameless advertising, but it's a good tool. Uh, There's QTV, the quick text viewer by our own JT. And um, so the rationale for that is is sometimes I have a directory with hundreds of text files and I need quickly uh, to scan through them to find a certain file. Opening each file to check the contents gets old real quick. Uh, Thus, the need for a quick text viewer. That's like a preview on macOS, Um, hence the name. So... And it does exactly what it's supposed to do. Don't expect it to do anything else. Well, that's the Unix philosophy. Do one thing, but do it well. And yeah, that looks pretty straightforward. Yeah, if you made it so I could
1: also write, then it would replace mousepad for me on my Lumina desktop.
0: Oh yeah, I guess they will have that in Lumina because it just makes sense. Unless they have something else in the... um, file manager already that does that but yeah if you're um, interested in that check it out it's uh, QTV on GitHub and we have the link of course in the show notes so uh, time for feedback and questions Uh, Yes, we uh, got a little questions from you, the audience, but um, we need a little bit more to fill the future episodes. So if you have anything, something that you are uh, struggling with, anything that's unclear that we can help you with, or we can also hand it over to the community, then send it over to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll have something for future episodes. So first one in this week is Ron with ideas for feedback section and that one Goes like this. Um, it's short, but it's definitely good to have. Um, so he writes I have a suggestion. Alan mentioned he installed ZFS on his Mac. If so, that might be a good topic to consider as a tutorial. A tutorial of setting up ZFS
1: on a NetBSD machine, maybe? Um, so it turns out that ZFS is the same on every platform. Um, so you don't really need to install uh per se so if it's netbsd um then if you're running the development version there or i guess actually if you're running the latest release it's just built in and you just have the zpool command and use it like you normally would um for os 10 there's an installer package or you can go over to the github and follow the instructions um but it's generally you just uh, compile and install uh the so ZFS package, which gives you the ZFS command and the ZPool command and uh, in the kernel module. So if you check out the open ZFS on OS 10 Git repo, run autogen and configure, compile it, run the little load script, uh, then you have ZPool status uh, and so on. And then you just do the same ZPool create command you would do on FreeBSD. On OS X or Mac or Linux or Lumos mm. or whatever, the only thing that might be different is what the names of the disks are.
0: Yeah, right? it's that's not going to be
1: ADA zero uh, P three on on Mac OS. Um, but other than that, you end up with exactly the same ZFS.
0: Yeah, that's all the same commands that you um, that you acquire. And I guess for compiling, you'd need xcode
1: installed, but most people yeah, have that already. Yeah, uh, if you if you're not going to be working on ZFS you can, there are prebuilt installer images uh on the openzfs for os10 website
0: oh, uh, and
1: if you're using uh NetBSD, same as freebsd it's just built into the os if you have a new enough version uh for linux uh some distros ship with it uh others if you go to zfs on linux.org they'll have you know rpm packages for centos or uh you know Apt packages for Debian or whatever, and you just install it. Yeah, straightforward. And uh, make sure to separate your
0: <laughs> operating system partition or disk from the other disk that you're using ZFS for, because um, don't wipe out your <laughs> op- uh, your OS ten uh, disk. Otherwise, you won't have much yeah, of an so open.
1: So <laughs> what I did was boot into the rescue system on the OS ten, shrink the Existing HFS in half and then use the second half of the disk for ZFS.
0: Yeah, that's free space then. And then that yep. hap- ZFS is happily to manage that. So yeah, yeah uh, definitely good idea. And do it that, yeah. works great.
1: And I can ZFS send stuff from my FreeBSD machine to my Mac and then take it with me. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. OK, let's hope uh, that uh, helps
1: uh, with answering the question here. And oh. uh, one more thing Dave in the chat room points out. Don't forget ZFS on Windows. Oh, yes. It's Uh, maturing quickly. It's a a little more complicated, but if you follow the instructions on the wiki, you can get it going, and then you'll have zpool.exe and zfs.exe, and you can... uh, Again, the disk's names are slightly different, uh, but other than that, you end up with ZFS. Uh, It's not very fast compared to uh, elsewhere at the moment, Uh, mostly because there's a lot of debugging and stuff left in it so that you can figure out what goes wrong but in general you will be able to ZFS send and receive stuff between your uh, Illumos, FreeBSD, NetBSD uh, Linux, Windows or Mac machines or importantly import a a compatible pool in any of them making it finally the perfect reliable compatible um, USB stick file system Mm. once my TV can speak it it'll be perfect
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that's why it's easy to learn ZFS or invest the time to learning it because you can reuse it in many other operating systems because Mm. it's just the same and learning it once using it many times is the best thing uh, that you could do if you haven't uh, enough uh, ZFS knowledge yet okay um, going next with Paulo here about uh, SDIO firmware Uh, Paulo writes Uh, Greetings. I have a quick question. I see this ongoing work on SDIO for ARM platforms, which is required for Wi-Fi. And I have a question on firmware. I think from what I have seen so far, there's only one Linux distro that ships the firmware with it uh, for the Raspberry Pi. Is this something related to licensing?
1: I don't know that much about that bit of it. Uh, You mean the firmware for the Wi-Fi chip? That's entirely possible, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, I guess the one for the Raspberry Pi is free because that's the, the idea for the Raspberry Pi to not make it um, too uh, commercial or too, you know, that's, that's free and open so people can tinker and uh, play with that. Um, he's curious for when the RPi Wi-Fi hardware ends up being supported on FreeBSD, if it will be possible to ship the firmware with the image itself or does it require the user to see uh, to use the port below? So there's the port RPI-firmware in Sysutils. Um, as this relates to base connectivity, it would be nice to have that on the image itself without having to set up required connectivity just to get the Wi-Fi working. So after booting the user, uh, after booting the user can configure it with a keyboard and start using it. So I guess um, once SDIO has been tested enough and is working enough so that we can ship it, then we can think about shipping the firmwares and whether we are allowed to do it and or whether they have to, um, they have to provide it with the, with the ports, like we do it for um, the newer graphics came out, for example. We don't ship that in the base system or not the newest one. Um, we rely on ports because that can be updated more frequently. And I guess if we come to that decision, then it's probably going to be in uh, ports, not in the base system. Because not everyone needs that in the base system. Uh, so, uh, yeah, one uh, more I've
1: question? shipped a lot of firmware in the base before, just because especially for Wi-Fi, you don't have internet to go download it yet. Yeah, chicken egg, and how do I get the it's, Wi-Fi if I but, don't have Wi-Fi? Uh, <laughs> licensing is a reason why it would end up in a port. Yeah.
0: That's one reason. So, um, here's one more question. Um, <laughs> too lazy to revisit top of email to modify it. <laughs> Easy. Okay. It seems there's a uh, no link to wiki.freebsd.org from www.freebsd.org. Is there another official page um, from the project with documentation? Uh, feedback I have is to make the documentation page on the main website a bit more streamlined to present all available resources. And so, let's see. Let's go to freebsd.org and go to… In particular… Uh, yeah. There was oh, also it's something
1: the, I was looking for the other day that was hard to find, but... yeah,
0: no, it's, it's on the developers. There's the wiki link.
1: Yeah. Uh, the wiki wasn't really meant for users. It's, uh, but it kind of has ended up that way, so maybe we should mm-hmm. do something about it. Yeah, originally
0: all the articles on there or the, the, the how-tos, let's say, these are supposed to become um, articles themselves or being integrated into the handbook. Um, but it's just um, a bit of work to do that or we don't have enough help. Uh, If you're interested in that, contact me and we can uh, make something happen. Or um, we need to wait until some of the articles have stable enough or are not not being worked on too much because we don't have to uh, make all these changes all the time. So if they're stable enough on the wiki, then we can easier transport them into the handbook or other articles. So that's the main reason. Um, The other stuff with the streamlining, I guess documentation needs to be a little bit uh, more front and center or pointing yeah. to the right resources. But at least has the handbook in there, the manual pages, and yeah, we can yeah maybe put that a little bit more central so that people can find it and don't have to uh, <laughs> go hunting for it. But yeah, good, good suggestion. And I guess the uh, question with the firmware we also asked, I hope that SDIO will work one day. I mean, we're in the final stages. I've seen patches, um, but I think they're still under review and um, need a little bit more uh,
1: polishing. Yeah, it's okay. not really my uh, area, so I haven't been following it very closely.
0: Yeah, but people are working on that. It's not there's no big issue. It's just a matter of time for the developers to to finish it. Okay. Uh, last but not least is Dan uh, with some fun ZFS questions about uh, labels. Okay. Uh, Dan writes, hey there, Alan and Benedict. Please just refer to me. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Uh, This one, well, we should have removed that. Okay. Um, La, la, la. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, well, it's not, I think it's anonymous enough. Um, So he loves our show and finds it quite informing. So thanks for that. Um, I have a couple of simple ZFS questions for you that regard how to normalize a config I inherited. Okay. So um, here's the one currently, so there's two, so there's, yeah, there's a two-mirror pool, mirror zero and mirror one, mm-hmm. and with two devices each mirrored, of course, and I'm in the process of recovering the failure, so there's one de- degraded disk there mm-hmm. uh, that was previously ADA zero, and now it looks like this. Ah, there's one disk resilvering, so that's yeah, the new so, one, I guess.
1: Yeah, uh, when he started, he had a degraded pool that had one disk that was missing, so it has the GUID of the disk, which is just numbers. Uh, And then the second disk had the GPT-ID of the device, um, which is of a partition. Uh, And then the second mirror is two entire disks, which is actually uh, slightly weird that you would mix whole disks and partition disks together. Uh, So yes, now that he's done the part, he's resilvering, and he's going to end up with one mirror of ADA3P3, uh, the second mirror of just this random GPT ID which is those are really annoying because if you have a bunch of disks like the beginning and the end of the grid, uh, the GPT IDs are the same for every disk and it's only a little bit in the middle that changes and it's very hard to tell what one's what and I'm not a big fan of GPT ID as a partition type or mm-hmm. um, a label type. Yeah. So he says the top two disks have GPT partition tables but ADA1 and ADA2 do not. Uh, this is driving me crazy. Ideally I would like all four disks to have Uh, boot partitions and boot code, no matter what happens in the chassis, it'll work, which is uh, the main reason why I would do it that way as well. Mm. Uh, In addition, the partitions of the first mirror uh, are labeled with older versions of FreeBSD installer uh, and did this weirdness uh, where the first and second disk were uh, consistently named. I understand that it's generally bad to use raw disks in your pools and I'd like to be able to shrink down the pools so that uh, they don't use the extra space. So, ZFS probably has just enough uh, slop because of the way it uh, uses powers of twos and so on, that you can probably um, detach ADA1, r- partition it, and then reattach it. And as long as you don't steal gigs of space for a swap partition or something, if you just create, you know, like a, a 512 kilobyte uh, boot partition and uh, the rest. For ZFS, you should be able to just reattach it uh, to ADA2, uh, and it will resilver, and you'll have a partition disk with boot code, and then you can do that same thing with ADA2, and there you go. Uh, as far as fixing the uh, names of the other devices, if in your boot/loader.conf you set kern.geom.label.gpdi.d.enable equals zero, uh, it will no longer do GPT ID. Crazy labeling, um, yeah. And then all your disk will just be called ADA number P number. Uh, and that will be less ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, less, um, less wit. <laughs> otherwise, if you're running FreeBSD 12, you can do um, zpool remove and actually remove Mir one, and then repartition the disks and add it back if you have enough free space. Oh yeah, but
0: that's a I feature we get.
1: don't know that I recommend that just because it's meant for shrinking, not for just rebuilding that way. Mm. But it is an option. Yeah. The other option is, so it is in the BIOS boot case, possible to boot from the unpartitioned disks. Uh, the first uh, tiny bit of the disk isn't used so you can write uh, basically if you do the MBR style uh, boot setup to ADA1 and ADA2 basically you write uh, a boot one stage that just knows to seek a megabyte into the disk past the labels and it will reach into this uh, special three and a half megabyte reserved area in ZFS where you've written the boot code. Uh, So if you look Mm. at the way you can do MBR booting with ZFS, you can make that work for whole disks so that you can boot that way. Okay. Maybe maybe that won't work, actually. You might have to do it a little different to have no partition table, because I think the boot zero will look for an MBR and get confused.
0: Oh, and don't I switch don't to the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway,
1: yeah. easiest way is ZFS has enough slop to deal with the drive not being exactly the same number of sectors or something where you can probably just disconnect ADA1, partition it, and reconnect it and then do the same thing with ADA2 once the resilver is finished and do another yeah. resilver and then you'll have all partitioned disks and you can put nice boot code on them all and it'll be good. Mm, yeah, it's
0: just a bit of disk jockeying, but yeah make sure that the reservering finishes each time. Um there are uh, a couple of questions at the end mm-hmm. as well. Um like is there a zfs command that will show the relative size of the individual disks? zpool list -v. Yeah, and since it's a mirror it will always be the smallest one in all of those.
1: Right. But <laughs> yeah, if you just do zpool list -v, it will print out for each disk its uh you know, size, how much of it is used up, and and mm-hmm. so on. And, yeah, is
0: there a way to remove and add ADA2 slash ADA3 as a partition without needing to resilver each
1: one? Uh, not really, no. It, yeah,
0: it's the internal resilver is
1: s- not going to be that expensive. Uh, they're mirrors, yeah, so not- the resilver is relatively quick. If you're using uh, FreeBSD 12, uh, sequential resilver is in there, and it's much, much faster.
0: Yeah. And the last question we already answered with the GPT-ID enable equals uh, zero.
1: If you just set GPT-ID off in the sysctl, but in the boot slash loader.conf, it will disable the types you don't want, uh, which will force it to use the types you do want. Exactly,
0: yeah. Okay, I think that should uh, get your pool to a more sane state,
1: uh, at least for labeling. But, you know,
0: uh,
1: so yes, the labeling is less important. That's... uh, it bothers me personally as well, which is why uh, I, I disable ID, but it's not going to hurt the functionality of the pool. Yeah, uh, no however, one will see that. The two unpartitioned it? disks, if ADA0 dies and your BIOS decides to try to boot off ADA1 and it can't, then your system doesn't boot, and that's not what you want.
0: Yeah,
1: and so keeping labels,
0: um, yeah, because if you see, let's say a disk is dying and you have the labels exactly like the The serial number then you can say exactly ah it's that one with that serial number which should hopefully be on your label outside of the case so you pull the right disk. Um, But yeah that's typically um, what you start off with and if you inherited that pool you uh, just continue with that and maintaining that um, and keeping it healthy. All right, um, yeah, that pretty much wraps up our show this week. Uh, Thanks for watching. And again, if you have anything for us, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll have something to cover in the next episode.